Wow. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken us long enough to get here. Uh, I think I've only spoken once since February uh, in class. So I, I'm sorry. We, we had Easter, and I had, was gone three weeks to India, or three Sundays. And uh, between one thing and another, we just haven't been able to get together. But it's good to see all of you. Thank you for being here. Romans chapter 12, we're moving into now the, uh, um, ultimately, the, the climax of the book. <clears throat> For most of us as Christians, we think doctrine is so important. When many of us, uh, I want to know uh, election. So we, let's, let's get, boy, hey. <laughs> so let's get through chapters 1 to 8 as fast as we can so we get to chapter 9 and we'll talk about election. Or, I want to know about grace. I want to, and all of that's all of that's important. But when Paul wrote the letter, um, he had a purpose. He had gotten to know some things about the church in Corinth. Uh, in, in Corinth, that's true, but not relevant here. Uh, 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 he's probably in Corinth when he's writing Romans, and uh, he's gotten to know some things about the church at Rome that he writes this book in order to address. Um, we've said this so many times, you're probably weary hearing it, but writing in the first century was too difficult. You didn't just do it on a lark. Uh, oh, I haven't talked to these people in a long time. Maybe I'll write, write them a letter. Uh, it was too difficult. An estimate has been made that the first time the book of Romans was written, I, I'm not talking about any copies. The first time Paul dictated it, it would have cost in the equivalent of about $2,500. It's very difficult to write, very expensive, and then copying it would be even more. You, you follow what I'm saying? So you don't just decide, hey, I think I'd like to write a letter to somebody. Um, <clears throat> in the light of that, then a lot of the speculation about what Romans is about is is just simply um, misdirected. Uh, one man said that Romans is Paul's theology of the Old Testament. <laughs> Another, it's, uh, it's his last testament, as it were. It's, it's really getting along toward the end of his life, though he has a few years, six or seven years left in his life. Uh, there are all kinds of estimates about what the book of Romans is about, and there are whole books just written on the history of the interpretation of the book of Romans. Uh, but generally speaking, the way Paul has written his letters is the way you, write, you, you speak to persuade. Okay? Yes? All right. You don't just write a letter to inform, you write a letter to persuade. And if you're writing to persuade, I have to ask the question, well, what are you trying to persuade people about? Yes? So, what, well, the way the book is arranged is important. Um, even, even a story, the way a story is, is arranged is important. I tell my students, if we're in a gospel, for example, and we get to a passage and I say, why is this passage where it is in the text? If you say, well, that's when it happened, that may be true, but irrelevant. 
because the story doesn't have to be told in chronological order. Sometimes telling a story in chronological order actually masks the point of the story. So you have to rearrange the events so that people get the events in the order they need in order to understand the point of the story. Does this make sense? So um, there is a specific form, a specific order in arranging information so that people get the point. So what is, what is um, the book written for? Well, I point out that this is chapter 12. <laughs> Amen? Amen. You're, you're waiting, aren't you? Is the other shoe going to drop? The answer is yes. You see, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And chapter 12 implies chapters 1 to 11. There you have it. Uh, most insightful thing I'll say this morning. <laughs> uh, but, but we knew that. Look at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Are you with me here? Therefore, by the mercies of God. Yes? Well, what does therefore tell you? Uh, Howard Hendricks used to say, when you see a therefore, stop to find out what it's there for. You must discover the wherefore of the therefore. <laughs> so, what is, what is this therefore, therefore? Well, what he's going to say in chapters 12 to 15 grows out of what he said in chapters 1 to 11. That's where we find about the mercies of God. You follow this? So if I go back to chapter 1 and think my way through chapters 1 to 11, I'm looking over the mercies of God again, but to what end? Uh, if, 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 if you know, and I suspect in a group like this, nearly everyone knows 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, um, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Yes? And is profitable. It's not enough ever to simply say what the text says. I must say what its profit is. Do you follow? Uh, in this case, the prophet is, is Paul. <laughs> the prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, prophet. I was hoping you could make that connection. <laughs> it's a good thing you're not in one of my classes at school. You would not pass. You're not, you're not doing well this morning. Uh, but what is the profit? So uh, is profitable for doctrine, teaching. But also three other things, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So when I have chapters 1 to 11, the key question I must be asking at every stage through the book is, what is the doctrine? The, but we've, we've dealt with that. But the reproof, the correction, uh, the, the inst and instruction in righteousness. Do you follow this? Mm -hmm. So I've got to be preparing for that. Every, I, I, early in my ministry career, I thought to myself, I don't even know how to apply the text. I've, I see preachers who are so good at this. Um, they seem to know, but I... I can't see how they do it. I, when they point out the application, I think, yeah, that's the application of this text. But how did they get to it? I thought maybe they had some kind of a wand that they got in seminary that they waved over the text, and out of it came fluttering the, the application. Until one day, I had what 
a uh, speaker at, at the seminary my first year defined, he, he defined insight as a sudden flash of the obvious. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> uh, and I had a sudden flash of the obvious. If all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, then every passage of scripture is either doing one of three things. It's either giving application itself, or it's preparing for application, or it's explaining application that's already been given. My task is not to create the application. My task is to find it. Does that make sense? So if God has given the scripture for applicational purposes, I must look to see where the application is and how the rest of the passage, how the rest of the book is setting up that application. So notice in chapter two, 12, verse 2, that he says, uh, you, 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 uh, I'm sorry, 12, 1 at the end, this is your reasonable service. Make your body a living sacrifice. It's a reasonable service. So far, so good? Yes? All right. So what is this sacrificing your body as a living sacrifice? What does it look like? How does it work? And why is it based on the mercies of God in chapters 1 to 11? Well, the grace of God is essential at Rome because you've got a problem at Rome. I know that because I've read the whole book. Um, Dr. Hendricks always said, when you start, start studying a passage, you don't start with the passage. You start with the whole book. Because meaning flows from the whole to the part and from the part back to the whole. So your study has to start with the whole and then go to the part and then, and then reform your concept of the whole. Am I making any sense to you? Uh, so after many readings of the book of Romans over the years, I started teaching Romans <laughs> before I even knew what I was talking about in 1973. <laughs> yeah. um, I had a professor who was, who was scheduled to teach Ethiopic one semester, and one of my Ethiopic, yikes. Uh, and uh, one of my friends said to him, Dr. Barker, when did you study Ethiopic? He said, I haven't yet. <laughs> uh, but he, he had studied several other Semitic languages, so Ethiopic was just going to be a specification of several principles he already knew. My, my problem in 73 was I really I kind of had a general notion of what was in Romans, but I had no real idea what it was about. My only resource was the Schofield Notes. Uh, but <clears throat> my hope is built on, uh, on nothing less than Schofield Notes and Scripture Press. So, uh, uh, <laughs> but, but in these last many years in studying and teaching Romans, I've had occasion to read the book over and over and over again. And, and again, an, I had another insight, sudden flash of the obvious, one day. Let me show you the structure of the book uh, of these chapters 12 to 15, just a moment here. Um, this is the application of Paul's teaching uh, in the uh, book. Um, so we, through our self-sacrifice, must receive one another by grace, Paul says. First, there's the introduction in verses 1 and 2. Critical pair of verses. Uh, most of you know it. Yes? I beseech. I learned it in King James. Can hardly quote it without King James. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may demonstrate. And I looked up that word demonstrate again just to see. And one of, its, it, one of the proposed definitions for the word is to verify. And given the structure of the Greek, uh, of the Greek sentence there in verse 2, I think that's the point. That you may verify what the will of God is. That it is good and acceptable and perfect. Yeah, that that the word also means that it's a word that's used for assaying uh, uh, or uh, so uh, proving. But this will be in this t- case. Uh, it's also used, by the way, to test for the purpose of uh, of um, um, approving. And so here we're verifying what the wor- what the will of the Lord is. It's good and acceptable and perfect. Well, what are the things that we do? To make our bodies a living sacrifice. There are three in the book, in these uh, chapters. First, chapters 3 to 8, you demonstrate that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. You make your body a living sacrifice by ministering to other people in your spiritual gifting. Right? So verses 3 to 8. Uh, second, in verses 9 through 13, what is that? That's too late. 14 is too late. 13.10 will be about right. Um, 13.14, there's a parenthetical passage in, in 11 to 14. But you do it, you make your body a living sacrifice, you demonstrate what the will of God, or that you, you verify that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Second, by loving people sincerely. Uh, and third, by, by the way, notice that's a fairly long passage, yes? What you'll notice is each of these gets longer. So finally, uh, the parenthesis in 11 to 14, then <laughs> it, it got lost. Um, the, uh, sometimes the computer makes its own decisions and, and uh, does things. So. But third, in, 15, uh, in 14, 1 to 15, 13, the longest passage in the applicational section of the book, you make your body a living sacrifice. You... Um, verify what the will of God is, that it's good and acceptable and perfect, by accepting people who differ with you in the way the Christian life ought to be lived. And if this, notice that this is not only one of the longer passages in the application section, but it's the last one. In a speech, if you were giving a speech and you were aiming at a point, what would be the most important part of the speech to motivate people to to carry it out the end you're building to the end paul paul folks a letter is what you would say to a to a person or a group if you were present yes so in effect paul has written a sermon that someone the letter carrier is probably trained to read so that when that carrier gets to it to Rome they can read the letter in the right way so that uh, Paul will have said raise your voice here uh, do it for me and, and the reader would would read it no not that way do it this way are, are you with me here this is this is documented it's known this is the way official letters were written uh, am I making sense to you so Paul is writing as an official of the church he's an apostle of Christ yes that's the way he introduces himself in chapter 1, verse 1. 
an apostle by calling. So he's writing an official letter to the church. It would be the sermon he would give the church at Rome were he present. He's instructed a reader how to read it. And you're coming now to the climax of the letter. And the climax is about, look over in chapter 14. We've been saying this all the way through the study of the book. Um, because this is the, the end to which Paul wants everybody to come. Yes? And so you have to keep, I have to keep in mind, we have to keep in mind, passage by passage through the book, how does this passage serve this goal? So in 14.1, we immediately have a problem, translational problem, and I don't know, I think I know how it should be translated here. Him who is, pardon me, him who is weak in the faith, receive. And it's the latter part of the verse that's hard to translate. There are two ways it's read. Not to pass judgment on his opinions is one. The other is not to discussion about doubtful things. And it's, I think, that latter that should be used here. <clears throat> the point is, in the passage, Paul is going to be dealing with what's called Christian liberty. Uh, Christian liberty, we have misunderstood almost every class I've ever taught has misunderstood Christian liberty. Well, it's, if, if the Bible doesn't command or prohibit it, I'm free to do it. That's not the nature of Christian liberty. It's, in fact, the inverse of that. Christian liberty is my freedom to limit myself as much as is necessary to help other people grow spiritually. Folks, every human organization that's successful acts that way. It's true in sports. It's true in the arts. It's true... Um, in business, it's true in everything. Are you with me here? Pardon? Yeah. Uh, what, the definition? Yeah. Christian liberty is the freedom to limit ourselves as much as necessary to help other people grow spiritually. So Paul will say here, um, um, if my brother is scandalized by, by my meat, I will eat meat no more again forever. Are you with me? There are two groups at Rome. Paul calls one of them weak here in chapter 14. Look at chapter 15, 1. He himself belongs to the group which is strong. Look at the first verse there. We, we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please, our, not to please ourselves. What does this mean? If you've got a brother in Christ who thinks somehow that eating meat, mind you, the issue of meat sacrifice to idols is not even in Romans. That's in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. This is Romans. That's a different book. Paul has a, as far as I know, the Roman church didn't even know about 1 Corinthians when he wrote this letter. Does this make sense? So if that's the case, then the likelihood is that they didn't even think about meat sacrifice to idols. The issue is there were people who just thought eating meat was problematic spiritually. So, looking back at chapter 14, um, <clears throat> verse 3. This is part of the introduction to this final section. Uh, the one who eats, let him not despise the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat, let him not <coughs> condemn. condemn the one who does. So a weak brother who doesn't eat meat looks at a strong brother who does eat meat and says, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christian and eat meat. 
You had what for lunch? We're not talking even about ham. We're just talking about meat. I had a, I had a hand in the back first. <coughs> yeah, we're, we're going to get there, but not right now. We've got too many other fish to fry right now, <laughs> Chris. Yeah. How, how far does it go? It, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. But let me just lay it out, and then we'll, we'll deal with it as we come to it. But I've got these two groups, the weak, and, the weak and the strong. The weak condemn the strong. What do the strong do to the weak? Look back at verse 3. They look down on them. The word in Greek means to make nothing out. I don't pay any attention to them. They're, they're weak. Mind you, the weak never called themselves weak. Weak, what, what, does, he, what does weak even mean? What does strong mean? Uh, weak, I think, given the context, means that your conscience is more restrictive than Scripture is. If that's valid, but because Scripture never says you can't eat meat. Are you with me here? So if, if Scripture never says you can't eat meat, but you think it's a sin to eat meat, your conscience is more restrictive than Scripture is, and you're more righteous than God. You're more righteous than Jesus, who ate lamb at the Passover. Yeah. Are you with me here? That's weak. Then, by, by comparison, what would strong be? Strong would be the opposite. Your, your conscience approximates the standards of Scripture. The closer you are to the standards of Scripture, the stronger you are. In this, in this light, then, what are the doubtful things? The doubtful things are everything in the middle. There are things that God has commanded, yes. There are things that God has prohibited. And in the middle, there are all the doubtful things. Like Brussels sprouts. Like, well, no, that's not doubtful. That's uh, <laughs> Brussels sprouts and canned asparagus should be all dumped in the sea, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and may I add brain, which I had in India a couple of years ago. Yes, ma'am. Well, no, not necessarily. They're things that God has left to our discretion. Well, we may, we may, yeah, but it's 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 not a matter of legalism necessarily. Um, I was taught so long as a child, you you just don't dance. It's not godly to dance. I know that's not the case, but my conscience is weak in this area. I, my wife is laughing. David <laughs> dance. I know, I know, but but he also. But, but my point is, I know that there is nothing inherently sinful in dancing. There are ways to do it sinfully, but there are ways to do many things sinfully, uh, as I found out last night uh, when a guy hit me from the rear uh, twice, and then when I got out to exchange information, he ran off and hit me again, so uh, three times. Uh, and I'm not injured, and the car is only minor damage, but poof, yeah. you can drive a car sinfully, but that doesn't make driving sinful, yes? But for me to violate, and here's a basic principle one of my profs gave, one of the most boring men I ever knew. Boy, I, Jan, he was preaching one Sunday morning, and I was sitting there, and Jan jabbed me hard in the chest. I was snoring badly. Well, this guy is. This guy was so terrific. I tell you, he he puts melatonin to shame. Uh, 
but he, said, he didn't say much that was memorable, but, but he did say one thing. Your conscience is not always right, but it's never right to violate your conscience. Are you with me? So, so for me, it's just, huh? I, this is just something I can't take. I, I, if, if other Christians want to do that, that's fine. I, I don't have any problem. I don't look down on you. I just, you see, it's not a matter of legalism necessarily. Mm-hmm. So when we walked in, they had uh-huh. head yeah. right there that you could pick up yeah. and put on, and I did. Yeah, for the sake, yeah, for the sake of the practice of the group. Right. When you go to the, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, you, as a man, you have to put a head covering on. So you do, because you, you don't want to dishonor mm-hmm. the group. You, you're there to to appreciate what's what's there and not to dishonor the the, the, the Jewish people. So. These doubtful things are areas where we have discretion, yes? The weak are weak because they're more restricted than Scripture is in terms of their conscience. The strong are strong because their conscience approximates the standards of Scripture. But I want you to see that Paul finally, let's go back to chapter 15 for a moment. I want you to see that in chapter 15, Paul brings his basic argument of the book of Romans to a conclusion. So... Verse 7, uh, for this reason, receive one another as Christ received you for the glory of God. I want you to see there two things, that in talking about receiving one another, look back over chapters 12, 13, and 14 in your mind a moment. When you're ministering to each other in your spiritual gifting, you're receiving one another. When you're loving each other without play acting, you're receiving one another. And when you don't despise or condemn one another, when you recognize that people under the, under the grace of God have freedom in doubtful matters to make decisions, and some choose more, more uh, uh, restrictions and others choose fewer, you still accept one another, you're receiving one another. So Paul is summarizing chapters 12, 13, and 14 in the first part of verse 7. But then, in the last part of verse 7, as Christ received you for the glory of God, is summarizing chapters 1 to 11. So, how do I receive you? Well, I receive you the way Christ received me. Well, how did he receive me? Chapters 1 to 3, what am I like? I am awful. I am lost and condemned under sin, and I have no hope except in the work of Jesus, yes? But from chapter 321 through 425, I begin to find out how, what Christ has done. First of all, in the end of chapter 3, I find out what he has done to, uh, to bring me into right relationship with God. And then chapter 4 tells us what faith looks like, living by faith, not by works. See? God didn't accept me because I do better than other people. I don't. I am lost and condemned and hopeless in sin. I have nothing to offer me. I have nothing to commend me to God. Nothing. So I must simply come on the basis of the work of Christ, trusting him and him alone. Does this make sense? Yeah. Is he he basically... I'm paraphrasing now. Is he basically saying keep your ego away from the ministry? Yeah. Uh, 
I, I struggled with what humility was for years, trying to understand it. I finally came, again, a blinding flash of the obvious. Um, humility is the freedom from having to think about yourself, which means I'm not humble. I, I have very little humility. Because um, I think about myself all the time. Just get yourself out of the equation and, and go do. Go live in faith in Christ. Uh, so um, the issue for us is that chapters 1 to 11 lay out for us the mercies of God, how Christ received me. If he received me that way, then how do I receive you? Same way. Do I require you to start eating meat or quit eating meat? No, it's irrelevant. Chapter 14, verse 17 says, The kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But once you start hearing righteousness, you think, oh, well, there it is, obedience. Got to get that obedience in. A lady who was an elder's wife in my Sunday school class in Memphis came up after I was saying something like this. And uh, she said, well, Jim, I know that we're saved by grace, but after we're saved, don't we have to obey? I said, do you know Colossians 2.6? I, th- I loved her response. She said, I should. <laughs> Turn to Colossians 2.6. <laughs> that was a great response. I, um, wait, I can't make my fingers work. Colossians 2.6. Somebody read verses 6 and 7 aloud, loud enough where everyone can hear. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord... Now, watch something with me. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, how did you receive him? By grace, by faith. So walk in him. How, do you, how then do you live your life? Yeah, well, yes, yes, but just within verse 6, how do you live your life? If you started by faith, you, you walk in him. Is that a valid interpretation. Read now the beginning of verse 7 again. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith. Strengthened, strengthened in the faith. faith. So, so, yeah, it's a valid interpretation. Are you with me here? Yes, no? Mm-hmm. Right? The whole of the Christian life is, brothers and sisters, faith. Uh, so, uh, Paul is saying, look, um, receive one another as Christ received you for the glory of God. Well, how did Christ receive me? By grace. That's the divine side. The, the human side is faith. Paul says in Romans 4, there's a middle passage there around oh, verse 14, 15, 16, where he shows us that faith and grace are rough synonyms. If, if it's by grace, if it's by faith, it must be of grace. Are you with me here? He says that again in chapter 11. If it's by grace, it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. Are you with me? Yeah. Uh, so, so we're in the applicational section, but this isn't, number one, this is not the, the point that we should have begun with because we're Americans, we want more application and, not, and less theory. It's the place where we must end up because we must have the rationale for the life that God is giving us, and then must understand what that life is going to look like. Why? Because these are new rules? No, Paul has told us we don't live by rules, we live by faith. So what is this? This is, 
Paul telling us, Paul, an apostle of God, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to the situation in Rome, Paul, an apostle of God, who is writing, telling us through the Holy Spirit what the Holy Spirit's likely to be doing in our lives so we can cooperate with him instead of working at cross-purposes with him. Howard Hendricks said, uh, you're, you're going to be in trouble here at Dallas Seminary. This is my first year in seminary. He said, in fact, it was my first semester. He said, you have problem being a Dallas Seminary student. And the reason is you get so much Bible, you get so much theology. And we keep telling you, you have to apply all this. And he said, if you try to apply everything you're getting every semester here, <laughs> we have the distinction of having the two longest master's degrees in America. 120-hour Master of Theology degree and a 90-hour Master of Arts degree. For 90 hours, you can usually get a doctorate at a university. We've got a master's degree for but So eight semesters, 15 hours a semester, Bible every semester, uh, theology every semester. Are you with me here? He said, you can't apply all this that you're getting. You need to find the three, four, five places where the Holy Spirit's working in your life and, and get in tune with that and work on that. Let him work out the timing for the rest. I think that's a wise kind of answer. Paul is telling them, look, the application of, in, of Romans is based in 1 to 11. You must understand the mercies of God in 1 to 11 before you come to chapter 12. Never do a Bible study solely on chapters 12 to 12 to 15. Always start with chapter 1. Paul says, therefore, without the wherefore, the therefore don't make no sense. Yes? So you've got to do that. We've spent a lot of time laying the groundwork. Now we're coming to the capstone. But I say, this is the climax of Paul's argument. So let me ju justify that. I not only have a summary in, in verse 7. I, I have a, a climactic segment in verses 13, 8 to 13. So, for I, I say, Christ became a servant of the circumcision. Jesus served the circumcision. Who, who's likely to be weak, troubled about eating meat? Socially, who in the first century, ethnically, who's going to be worried about eating meat? Jews. How can I despise those whom Jesus came to serve? Does this make sense to you? Jesus became a servant of the circumcision for the sake of the truth of God so that the promises of the fathers might be confirmed uh, and that the Gentiles uh, might glorify God because of mercy, as it is written, for this reason I will confess your name among the Gentiles, uh, I will sing praise to your name. We Gentiles are more likely to be the strong group, yes? But we're second. He did all he did first for Israel, only secondarily for us. What standing do we have to look down on and despise, make nothing of those for whom Jesus came to be a servant? Is this making sense to you? So I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you make your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. What does it look like? It looks like this. 
I'm pointing to my computer as if you can see it. Uh, Fred? Jim, is it likely that the Jews would have been a minority in that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they uh, uh, by this time, this is probably in the mid-50s, there's a substantial um, Gentile uh, uh, group in the church. The Jews appear to be, the Jewish Christians appear to be somewhat of a minority in the, in the, con uh, in the uh, community. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so he goes on, verse 10. Notice how he, he organizes the ideas here. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So the people are, who are his people? The Jews. We're second. We're not first. They're first. We're second. Verse 11, and again, sing all you nations to the Lord, and let, uh, let the peoples, all the peoples, praise him. And again, Isaiah says, uh, a root shall come from Jesse, and the one who arises to rule the people, the, na the nations, in him, the nations will put their hope. And then he has a prayer. And Paul often concludes a major section of his, book, of his letters with a prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and, and peace. Why peace? Because the church is divided. With all joy and peace in believing. Um, uh, so that you will uh, abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. From this point on, from, from that verse, verse 15 begins now what is typical of a letter in the first century. Once you get through the main point that you're trying to get at, you add a number of personal items and exhortations and so forth. So the rest of this, chapter 15, is his personal plans about the future and the issues that he's uh, pursuing in his ministry. And then chapter 16 has uh, greetings to people he knows at the church. There was a hand in the back. Brother, yes. Yeah, so is he, in, uh, in, in this section, is Paul talking about the, the Jews as a uh, racial, religious group? Yeah, he's talking about, yeah, no, he's talking about uh, Israel, uh, that is the remnant that he mentions in chapter 11. So still regenerated. Yeah, Israelites. yeah, they're Israelites who are regenerated, good, good way of saying it. So we go back to chapter 12 then. Um, and I come, we've, we've already done a study. It's been several weeks ago. I despair that you have any even memory of it. But, uh, but uh, I beseech you, therefore, brothers. The word beseech, I, I don't know what you have. I urge you, I urge you. This word is used in Philemon where Paul says, you remember Philemon? You remember the book? What's it about? The slave Onesimus, that Paul wants to um, uh, to be accepted again by his master, and then Philemon, uh, Paul wants Philemon to send Onesimus back to Rome to to help Paul in his work. Does that make sense to you? Paul says in Philemon, though having authority to command, because of love, I urge. This word is not a command word. It's a love word. Are you with me here? My mother had command words and she had love words. <laughs> one, or, one of her command words, her, this was a saying, 
boy, when I yell frog, you ask how high on the way up. You've heard this before, I see, yes? That was a command word. This was not, you know, I love you, and this is why I want you to do this. Yes? This was a command word. Um, you know the difference between command words and, and love words, yes? So when my wife says something like, honey, I know I'm in trouble because she's going to ask me to do something, and she wants me to know that she loves me, though she's asking me to do that. Yes? Are you with me? Pardon? What, what was it? I'm looking at you. Yes. <laughs> when a school teacher does this, you know you're in trouble. Uh, so I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Notice, beseech brothers by the mercies. You are brothers. In Christ, you are brothers. If that's the case then you have been recipients of the, of, the, of the mercies of God, and there is a, a logical, reasonable um, result, response to that, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. When we talked about this some weeks ago, we pointed out that the average ox being sacrificed probably didn't enjoy it. Yes? Uh, so... This is probably, there are at least two things involved in this living sacrifice. It's probably going to be difficult, and it's probably going to be costly. One of the basic principles, most of you will know this, David at the, at the threshing floor of, Je, of a round of the Jebusite made a statement, around, offered him his ox and his plow in order to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and David's response was, I will not offer to the Lord what costs me nothing. So, this, this living sacrifice is going to be costly, and it, and it will take, there, there's an old view, this, the word present is, in Greek, is an aorist tense, and there's an old view, aorist means once for all. No, it doesn't. <laughs> when you want to say the least about an action, uh, you put it in the aorist, okay? So he's just wanting them to make a presentation, make a a, prison, a presentation is the best way I can say it. Uh, but what is it going to be? It's going to be the presentation is a living sacrifice. A, a living sacrifice cannot be made once for all. It has to be made day by day by day by day by day. Are you with me? And that's part of the costliness of it. If I could, if, if, Soldiers walked into our class this morning and say, uh, the government has changed. Um, all Christians are, are given the death penalty. You're all condemned to death. But if one of you will die for the rest of you, the rest of you can go. There would be a number of us who would stand. Take me, I'll, I'll do that. Right? Partly from altruistic motives, but partly... <laughs> If I go now, I don't have to face what the rest of them are going to have to face. <laughs> uh, I, and, and, and being a, being, <laughs> yeah, being the kind of person I am, I'm, I'm kind, of, uh, uh, kind of inclined to the grand gesture. And then after I make the grand gesture, I think, why did I do that? Why? <laughs> uh, um, but... Uh, uh, a living sacrifice, a, 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 die, a dead sacrifice, you can only make once. Mm -hmm. 
But a living sacrifice is going to take a lifetime to do. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. I I never want to stay on the altar. I never want to get get there. It's costly. It's not, at least initially, it's not enjoyable. Are you with me? All right. So make your bodies a living sacrifice. That means it must have at least two characteristics in addition. A living, if it's going to be a sacrifice, it has to be holy. That is, um, it's dedicated to the service and worship of God. Okay? Um, if it's, you, you see, when Israel went back from the Babylonian captivity, the first return, the purpose of it, read someday soon, maybe, Ezra chapter 1, uh, where the purpose of the, re- of the first return from Babylonian captivity is spelled out. I think it's three times in the passage. The purpose of the return was to build the temple. But read Haggai chapter 1, and what you will find is Haggai is a minor prophet. I know that. Yes? But turn to Matthew and turn three books left, and you got Haggai. Okay? So um, Haggai chapter 1, the people thought the purpose of the return was to go back and live there. Since they forgot their purpose, then they delayed the rebuilding of the temple for 16 years. And finally, Haggai and Zechariah are sent 16 years into their return from the land, to the land, and they, they finally get the thing started. Are you with me here? I have to understand my purpose. If I am, if I am uh, we're so close to 1 Corinthians, will you turn to 1 Corinthians 1? You can find it just a few pages to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul makes a most amazing statement about the Corinthians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle by calling by Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes the brother, to the church of God which is in Corinth. And then what does he say? What does sanctify? What does it mean to sanctify? Yeah, and these what, what's the word used here? Sanctified. Sanctified. What does de mean? Yeah, which means they've already become Christ-like. Corinth? They're divisive. They've got a man living with his father's wife, and they're boasting about it. Uh, they have people going to court against one another before unbelievers. They're consorting with prostitutes. Are you with me? Chapter 7, they can't figure out about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, they can't figure out that eating meat sacrificed to idols is a problem. Chapter 11, they've got women praying and prophesying without covering their heads. (laughs) And they've got people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And they're using the spiritual gifts, chapters 12, 13, and 14, for self-aggrandizement. These people are sanctified in Christ Jesus? Yeah, they are. So evidently, sanctification is not a pro- process of becoming more and more godly. Okay. There you have it. Yeah. And yet, since they are sanctified, then they are saints. Yes? Are you with me here? So, to be a saint means to be dedicated to the service and worship of God. 
And I must remember my purpose. My purpose is not to live. My purpose is to serve, to be a living sacrifice. Well, how do I do that? Three ways. Okay? I'll remember eventually. Uh, uh, yes, brother. It sounds like it. That's kind of the point, isn't it? Which is the thing I've been trying to belabor this whole study of Romans. Uh, uh, so um, you, you, you're going to make a sacrifice that's holy. That is, I remember my purpose. I am dedicated to the service and worship of God. If that's the case, then I must be about service, not about living. The point here is not, uh, I heard one time, a pastor visiting one of his parishioners who had not been in church for quite a while. And the pastor says, well, you know, it's unhealthy spiritually for you to be out of the fellowship of believers. And he said, I know, but pastor, I have to work. And, uh, and the pastor says, what do you mean? He said, well, a man has to eat. He said, who told you that? See, my problem is with much of my disappointment with God, with much of my frustration with God, my problem is I have my plan that he's supposed to bless. And when he doesn't bless my plan, I figure he's, there's something wrong with God. It couldn't possibly be that my plan was wrong. <laughs> it couldn't. And this is the thing that just galls me about God. He, he just, I tell you, he's always right. <laughs> Don't you hate somebody who's always right? You have friends who are always right. My wife is married to one. <laughs> She's looking down. It's even worse. <laughs> uh, but God's always right. And his plan really is better than our plan. Even when it includes a good deal of suffering. It's a lot better than our plan. Haven't you been through hardships in your life? And you now look back on them from, from the, the perspective of maybe years or decades. And you think, that was so hard to go through, but the Lord did such marvelous things in those times. Well, what if that's true in everything in our lives? That my, my task is to get involved in the plan of God and not get enmeshed in my own plans pursuing his purposes I am dedicated to the service and worship of God and that will be an acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God verse 2 don't be conformed to this world when we are when we are still thinking of ourselves as being here to live and to have good meals and have comfort and have some fun now and again yes um, when that's our purpose then we're conformed to this world. Rather, I must be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How does the renewing of your mind occur? Chapters 1 to 11. I, I need to understand. I have no standing on my own before God. I have none. I have none. I have no basis to stand before him. Um, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment. Proverbs says. Yes? I have no standing. The only standing I have is in Christ who came to be a servant of the circumcision. My only standing I have is in Christ 
who came to make a living sacrifice. Yes? If, if you see, when you see Jesus, what will you see in his body? The nail prints in his hand, the, the sword wound in his side. Are you with me? Marks of the thorns. Yeah, the marks of the thorns. You know, that, that would be ugly to us now. Yes? Let me point out something to you. It's part of our worldview. We have a false concept of what is ugly and what is beautiful. Haven't you seen some black and white photos? Professional photographers often take black and white photos of what we would normally look at as ugly, but the faces are beautiful because the, 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 they have used the light well to bring out the beauty in the face. Haven't you seen this? Well, what if our whole concept of what's beautiful and what's ugly is, is inverted and inside out? Does this make sense to you? Uh, then the most beautiful things we will see when we first come into the presence of the Lord are the things that we would consider the most ugly, open wounds, but they're the wounds that he, he bore for us. I didn't understand what it meant to be a mother at all until I sat by Jan's side as she was in labor. And I thought, oh my goodness, what did my mother endure for me? Am I making sense? So uh, you must have your minds renewed um, so that you may verify what the will of the Lord is, that it is good and it's acceptable and it's perfect then I will be making my body a living sacrifice. We'll, we'll turn to verses 3 and following in days to come. Uh, let me just point out one thing in verses uh, uh, 9 through uh, 21. The instructions come rapid fire, not even any conjunctions. Yes? This is a rhetorical device by which the speaker tells you don't, don't get enmeshed in all the detail. Take the whole point. We're, we're defining one thing. We're defining love here. And so think about what love is in light of all this that's there. So we'll go very quickly through some of those verses. Around verse 17, we'll have to slow down because he'll start talking about vengeance. And he'll continue talking about that through 13.7. And in that passage, we'll have to talk about what uh, 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 how, how vengeance works and what what God is doing in reference to vengeance and what he does in reference to the state. 13, 1 to 7 is really part of that passage on loving without play acting. Are you with me here? So I should have done that today. It's April 15th. (laughs) (laughs) So in honor of April 15th, we'll end with this. Verse 7. Uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, verse 6. For this reason... You pay taxes. <laughs> Glory. So let's, let's close with prayer. <laughs> Father, our minds are in need. My mind is in need of renewal. Um, and yet I've taught this stuff so many times. I'm all the more responsible to carry it out, more than anyone else in this classroom. I am more responsible. I have the greater standard of judgment. 
So, Father, yet even still my mind is not renewed. I thank you that you understand our weakness. But, but give us the ministry of the Spirit to impel us, not through force, but through the, through the um, pressure of love uh, to make our bodies living sacrifices for one another and for this world. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.